Hello and welcome to episode five of the Farm One podcast. I'm joined here today by Michael Chin, our VP of Corporate Development. Hello, Michael. Hello. Uh, and we're back from our Thanksgiving break and we're going to dive into uh, a bunch of news stories that Michael's going to introduce. Uh, but firstly, I'm just going to very quickly go through what's in uh, this week's bag. We have uh, in the blue box, which is herbs and flowers, we've got Nepotella stems, fragrant and minty. We've got Pluto basil, amazing sort of aromatic cinnamon flavor and aroma. We've got summer savory. We've got some beautiful violas. And then in the yellow box, which is uh, baby uh, microgreens, we've got mi micro carrot, which is awesome. Uh, Scarlet frills mustard and Miss America. Uh, which are both little mild mustardy flavor. And then we've got the red box, which is our baby greens with a mixture of baby, red streak, Mizuno. We've got Toscano kale. We've got red kale, some all-star lettuce mix, and then Hong Vit radish, which is great as well. Uh, so our members can look forward to that uh, this week being delivered by bike in reusable containers. Enough about the box. Oh, and also we're calling it uh, what are we calling it? The We're Stuffed Bag this we're week because we had a little bit too much to eat over Thanksgiving. I don't know what you had, Michael, but we made uh, all kinds of things. We did some uh, roast Brussels sprouts. With I did like some pickled shallots, which are great. I always forget how easy it is to like pickle little things and then use them as a garnish. Uh, really, really great tip. Um, and we did some mashed potato with garlic and then some caramelized onion gravy. And we did... Um, Oh, I did a pie. I did a savory pie, including wow. one of the uh, meat substitutes that we talked about last week. I used a Beyond Beef, uh, Beyond Sausage, uh, leek and mushroom pie. It was super nice and savory. And then we made an apple pie and then uh, these things that we call lemon chewies, which are like a sort of ginger nut biscuit type flapjacky iced sort of delight. So anyway, too much food. What about you, Michael? How, how was your Thanksgiving? It was great. I, uh, nothing compared to what you had. Uh, <laughs> I, got some, I got some sushi, very traditional, right, for Thanksgiving. But I did try the uh, Beyond Burger this weekend. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, it was very interesting. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was delicious, I thought, for, for what it was. Um, and What uh, prompted yeah. that? What was, the, what was the reason behind it? Um, some of the conversations we've been having on this podcast, uh, yeah. some of some of the things we've been talking about, and um, uh, it was it's it's in virtually every supermarket these days, so that's great. And uh, yeah, so decided to try it, and uh, yeah, it was pretty good. You know what I like about it is um, they they got some of the subtle flavors right. So, you know, the texture and all of that, you, you sort of bite into it and yeah, like, yeah, it's not really beef. And, you know, you can kind of sense that. But they got the taste of that kind of grilled or griddled uh, 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 burger flavor. Um, so I thought that was really cool. Uh, that was really encouraging. And I think uh, and can totally see, you know, how this will play in, especially in fast food um and these burger joints and you know the I, I think the impact of of this at scale um particularly at places like mcdonald's like we've talked about with the mcplant and others um i think is actually really promising and and i'm i'm really hopeful so yeah yeah it was, it was quite fun yeah yeah i mean my take on it sometimes is like beyond burger and impossible burger sometimes it's it's sort of like a good truck stop burger in a way mm. it's like a sort of it's not really like the sort of big 
gourmet burgers that you might get somewhere. It's more like a quicker, thinner sort of um, maybe quite fatty uh, char-grilled kind of burger. But um, but yeah, they're good sometimes. And um, yeah, it, it's it's great that the product's out there. It's, it's great that you tried it as well. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, it was really well, fun. And um, yeah. just along those lines, I ended up going to their website. So for those of you that are interested, they're doing a Cyber Monday deal. I think it's 20 Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, I had never so. really thought about going to like a burger company's website to like to buy something. But OK, yeah. all right. I didn't either, yeah. but I guess they're shipping uh, direct, which is which is also quite interesting. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to keep on doing that. That must be a, it's because it's just such a completely separate business to selling to, mm -hmm. um, you know, like a huge chain or something, isn't it? Like, oh, yeah. let's see if that continues. Yeah. Well, good. Um, so it's uh, November the 30th. Is that right? As we speak, um, what's in the news this week from around vertical farming, urban farming, food industry? What's all, what's going on? Yeah, we've got a few, I guess, macro industry things that popped up on, on our radar. Um, so we've talked a lot on this podcast in previous episodes um, about uh, investing in, in the food tech and ag tech space and all the innovation that's happening. Um, and there was a, a new fund that was raised by uh, a venture fund called Astana Ventures out of Europe. Um, I think this is their second fund. They started in 2017. They raised $325 million. So this was reported in TechCrunch. Um, and they're calling it their Global Impact Fund. And they're concentrating it on food and agriculture technology. And uh, they plan to deploy it uh, throughout Europe and, and North America. And it's, it's interesting to see them take this approach of um, uh, uh, food and ag tech, um, but really focused on uh, the climate debate. So I thought that was very, very interesting. So as opposed to some of the venture funds and some of the investments that we've talked about already, where you know they're, I guess, chasing uh, the billions of dollars purely for uh, uh, disrupting the ag and the food industry, um, they're taking a much broader global impact and impact investing approach to what they're doing. Um, so, um, you know, what's driving this is, is also really interesting. Uh, they're citing that, you know, obviously climate change and the climate crisis and greenhouse emissions, but they're looking at data points like 70% of the world's freshwater resources are consumed by agriculture. Clearly unsustainable. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the Earth's soil is degrading. Is degrading. Um, fertile soil is being lost at a rate of 24 billion tons a year. Uh, food waste is also a huge issue. Um, some 40% of food goes to waste. Uh, and we're also looking at much less biodiversity uh, from the monoculture uh, that we're seeing in agriculture of late, of probably the last couple of decades, where most fruit and vegetables have 15% fewer nutrients than they did in, in 1950. Um, so some of their past investments uh, since 2017 uh, in a French insect farmer uh, named uh, Winesect, um, 
Infarm, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> we uh, uh, know a lot about, vertical farming company uh, based out of Berlin. Um, Notpla, a UK-based company seeking to eliminate plastics um, by creating uh, highly functional packaging material from seaweed, uh, which I think is awesome. Um, and a California-based food waste reduction company called Appeal. Um, and uh, oh, yeah. so they're dealing with the uh, food waste issue. So that's kind of interesting. What are your, before we kind of dive into some of these areas that they're looking at and some of the driving issues, um, what are your thoughts overall on, on a fund like this and uh, taking kind of the impact investment route? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think if you look at both, you know, from the public market and there's increasing desire from consumers, you know, even passive investors, I would say, to have uh, a portfolio or, you know, even an index fund or, or whatever of, uh, of investments that are, are at least clean. I think we started with sort of like trying to eliminate really dirty, you know, fossil fuel stocks um, and maybe ethically questionable stocks. But now I think there's probably desire from a lot of consumers just to go more and more into companies that are actually actively doing good. And I think if you look on the public markets, you know, there's, there's not, you know, thousands and thousands of companies to choose from at that point. Um, and then when you, you know, when you contrast some of these companies' public messages with actually what looking inside inside their supply chains, it may be difficult to find like truly ethical investors investments. And so I think that, you know, now and over the next 20 years, if you look at IPOs and if you look at new companies entering the public markets, you're going to see appetite for investors to to pick those companies that are aligned with sustainable development goals that have from the beginning been set up to be um, you know, companies that are ethical, maybe, um, you know, have have something in mind like, like climate change. And so um, I think that makes sense from that perspective long term, right? You're trying to pick the companies that are eventually going to go public in that way. And I think in the shorter term, you know, if you look at uh, angel investing, as for instance, which is obviously normally the stage before a VC, you know, gets their money in, a lot of angel investors, a lot of small investors are really looking for those investments where they're companies that are seen to be doing good. Um, and what you'll find, um, you know, as, as you know, Michael, like, and, and if you look around um, the angel investment kind of world, you have these kind of high net worth individuals, um, particularly, you know, on the younger side who are looking to really use their money to, as a force for good in the world. And what, what people end up doing a lot of the time is aligning behind uh, a particular cause, of course. So, you know, it could be climate, it could be uh, education for women, it could be, um, you know, something to do with the um, the ocean, you know, it could, it could be a million things, right? So, um, and so they're looking for companies that have that kind of focus. Um, and, you know, the sustainable development goals is, is a sort of framework uh, that I think this fund has mentioned as you know, part of the way it looks at things. And if you look at the sustainable development goals, there's a lot of sort of themes there that you can kind of pick up on and companies can, can kind of fit into one of those buckets. The sustainable development goals, I have to say, are quite broad. I mean, there's 17 of them. Um, and so, you know, I think and, and number 17, I think if I'm right, is, is partnerships for the goals. And so you can actually have a theme that, which is all, about all of these things. But just to pick some other ones, we've got reduced inequality. We've got zero hunger. We've got no poverty good health and well-being, affordable clean energy. So you can see these are these are themes that a lot of uh, companies and, and young folks can can sort of pick up on. 
Um, and I think it, it just makes a lot of sense. So, you know, the, the, the thing that I think that's great about funds starting like this is it also pushes other funds, you know, VCs who've been around for 10, 20, 30, 40 years to then, you know, have another look at their own portfolio and look at, oh, okay, are we sort of supporting all these goals sufficiently? And over time, you know, the question for founders is, of course, going to be like, okay, if I get an equivalent offer from a traditional VC that doesn't really seem to have any portfolio focus around, you know, doing good, or if I have an offer from a fund which is all about positive impact and that fund can potentially connect with, with other, other entrepreneurs that have impact or other companies and, and can sort of promote that way of doing things, then as a founder, you know, it might be quite attractive to go with a fund uh, like that, that is, that's more impact focused. And, you know, the last thing I would say from a very cynical point of view is, you know, there's lots and lots of funds get started all the time and VCs and investors of all types are really just trying to differentiate themselves, you know, and a lot of them, uh, they put up a website that looks a lot like the website of the guys down the street and all the faces look very similar to the guys down the street. Um, and so, you know, this kind of thing, this kind of theming is, is you know, obviously a strategy to, to get in front of founders and get noticed in a way that you might not if you just start uh, a VC fund called like, I don't know, uh, Granite Capital or something, and it's made of your two buddies from Stanford, and it's just you know the same as everything else. So, so it makes a lot of sense to me, and I think some of the investments that you've mentioned, you know, APL, Nopla, uh, Infarm, obviously, you know, there's some companies that have obviously made um, you know made some some headway in this space, and so it, it does seem like they've picked a few interesting companies uh, already. $325 million is a, is a really decent sized fund uh, for a multi-stage investor. Um, so there's a lot that they can do with that, um, both in terms of backing uh, some companies that are, that are really pushing the boundaries and then also um, boundaries of innovation that is, but then also uh, uh, deploy the, that capital to some of the latest stage companies where it's about getting those businesses to a more mature state and to a market. So um, that's really promising. The other thing that was interesting in the article, which you alluded to, the a point that you alluded to as well, is that they're seeing the demand from their LPs, so their limited partners, whether they're you know larger uh, pension funds and the like, um, but also family offices um, uh, where you're seeing this yeah. new generation of investors uh, that uh, are interested in impact investing and that type of thing. So overall, uh, and, and all said, really promising, which also leads to um, the second set of articles that I thought uh, would be interesting to talk about. Um, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about plant-based alternatives and uh, some of the larger uh, chain restaurants and the like. Um, but there were two articles that really stood out over the last week. And one was IKEA, uh, which uh, we all, uh, I'm sure, have strong memories of and connections to as teenagers. Um, uh, but they're making 50% yeah. of uh, their food menu uh, plant-based by 2025. So they've uh, made that pledge and it's um, uh, solely, uh, or they're connecting it to their sustainability commitments. Um, and they plan to transition 80% of their package meals 
to plant-based, uh, giving its 680 million customers more sustainable options. Um, and what they found was that 75% of their consumers across 27 countries want to make more sustainable choices. Um, and they're thinking about it too, is, is very much a circular economy. So they're starting to do the research uh, and development over the next five years to not just look at the um, food that they're sourcing and, and adding to their menus, um, but make it, looking at it uh, from an entire food value chain perspective. So also with sustainable packaging and, and the like. Um, and together with this, uh, Marks and Spencers, which is a uh, UK-based company, also launched a new innovation hub to develop plant-based foods and plastic packaging, plastic-free packaging solutions. Sorry, their approach here is also very interesting. So they're creating an in-house specialist team. So they've identified uh, initially nine different areas that they think that they need to uh, do work around. Um, and so the idea there for them is that, uh, you know, they, they want to have this team that sits alone in-house um, outside of their uh, current business and their traditional business um, where they can solely focus on developing these new alternatives and these new approaches um, and also tying it to achieving a circular system where single-use materials are eliminated in favor of reuse and recycled alternatives. Um, and one idea that they are working on, which I think is really cool, is uh, to divert hard to recycle waste from landfills by turning it into new products uh, such as playground equipment. So, you know, this along with some of the companies like McDonald's and others that we've talked about, you know, Nestle has also talked about growing their plant-based category sales by 40%. Uh, Unilever has set a, a goal of 1.19 billion in annual sales from plant-based meat and dairy alternatives. Um, and Tesco also has a five-year commitment to increase sales of plant-based meat alternatives by 300, 300%. Um, so it sure seems like this stuff's going mainstream uh, and that, you know, soon maybe th these won't be the alternatives. Maybe these will be the staples. Uh, but that's uh, that's really encouraging uh, that that uh, to see businesses like this kind of switch to this, or at least put some real resources behind it. Yeah, I mean, starting with IKEA, you know, uh, I think that one of the things is that people sort of forget is how huge the footprint of IKEA is. You know, we're we're talking right now in the US, obviously it's a Swedish company being around for a long, long time. We, you know, my family's first experience of uh, IKEA would have been around 37 to 40 years ago, I think, um, and, you know, and they've just gone from strength to strength. And I think as a brand, in people's minds, you know, a lot of people have really fond sort of feelings towards IKEA. You know, you think about furniture that you had as a kid, you think about going to the store as a kid, um, and that's kind of how they get you, right? They get you with the cheap meal. Um, and for, for families, certainly it's a place where you can feed your kid, kids actually very affordably, right? And, and you know, maybe one or other of the parents stays with the kids for a while in the, in the restaurant while the other parent has a breather and goes and actually finds and hunts down all the items, you know, in the store. Um, and, you know, just as Costco has been able to 
um, you know, provide very, very low cost meals and that being part of their kind of value package, right? If you think about the experience of visiting a store, that's part of that value package is that $1.50 hot dog, right? IKEA has done that with its meatballs and the meatballs have been this sort of international export from Sweden in a way that, you know, very few other products have. And certainly we, you know, if you ask a regular person on the street, what is Swedish cuisine? They're probably going to have to think for a few seconds before they think about maybe some smoked fish, um, you know, uh, some cranberries or um, I can't remember the other type of berry. Lingonberry. Anyway, it'll come to me. But, you know, lingonberry, exactly. Of course, we eat them all the time, right? No, we don't. Because, you know, the, the meatballs at Ikea and those boiled potatoes and that sauce, you know, that is sort of Sweden. And that is like family weekends for a lot of people. And certainly... Um, you know, I still think of, I, I very nearly bought an Ikea desk on the weekend. I didn't for various reasons, but it's still a brand that, you know, whatever your choices are, whatever your designs that you prefer, it's still a brand that almost everyone would consider for certain items. And so for them to, you know, make a statement like this and to move towards more plant-based options on the menu, it has a huge impact. You know, I, I can't remember the exact stats, but if you look at it in terms of meals served, Ikea is one of the biggest um, food uh, food service you know providers in the world, uh, which is pretty staggering. And so, if you can get even a small proportion of those people to even try a plant-based option on that menu, I think that's significant. And then I think the other thing that's interesting about that to me is that proportion. You know, trying to get 50% of that menu to be plant-based. I don't know what the the baseline is right now, and sometimes it's easy to kind of obscure that. And if you include French fries in that, obviously, then you're sort of you know, giving yourself a boost. But even so, I think it starts to reach this point on menus where it's not just, you know, a couple of options to please the vegetarians and like, you know, the member of the family who's on a diet right now. It's, it's sort of becomes front and center on that menu, which means that people who've never sort of considered plant-based options before start to be confronted with them in a way that is sort of unavoidable. And so when big brands start to do that, Certainly in a food service setting like quick service where you see the menu and it's very much like there's only kind of four places to put a menu item, right? When you go to Ikea, it becomes very, very, very prominent. And that's where I think it starts to become really interesting because it, it, it starts to affect bigger proportions of, of society and it starts to make people who would normally you know, scoff at the idea of not having meat for lunch or dinner to make them go like, oh, okay, this is how it is now, you know? So I think it's really interesting. I think it's good. I think overall, you know, IKEA has a lot of sustainability initiatives and, and actually they've, you know, invested uh, in vertical farming in various forms. I think I'm right in saying they may have invested in Aero Farms or one of the other folks, but um, they, they've been interested in this whole approach and, and they have to be because they're a company that has such huge impact in terms of the material use, in terms of the footprint, in terms of their dining options that they offer. Uh, such a huge impact and so they it's i'm really glad that they're thinking about this um and then when it comes to marks and spencer you know as someone from the uk did, did marks and spencer ever end up in singapore yep. by the way they Am did. I, yep they did okay yeah but uh but it was they were doing clothing as well as food yep. or just just food or, yep. or clothing, clothing as well yeah um i remember them being in hong kong and i, I remember my mom being disappointed because they didn't offer like the same range of sizes, <laughs> you know, they had a, a different size range. Um, but, you know, Marks and Spencer is as a, you know, as someone who grew up partially in the UK, it's something where, 
everyone in the UK has this kind of mixed emotions about Marks and Spencer. It's a very familiar sort of traditional brand, but also, you know, they were seen not to have been moving forward. You know, the clothing went through all these ups and downs. And, um, and so I think that, you know, we have this mixed emotion about them. And, and certainly when it comes to the food offerings, I have to say that my, you know, instant sort of reaction to Marks and Spencer is lots of really nice stuff, loads of packaging, um, very, very, like even these tiny things, like when you walk in, very, very cold, um, you know, grocery stores and everyone working there wearing these big fleecy outfits because it's freezing cold, but lots and lots of packaging. And, you know, when you look at um, where they're sourcing a lot of these items, certainly in the UK, you know, they have had this commitment to giving people blackberries and blueberries and raspberries and strawberries year round, right? So they're coming from Kenya, often in the UK, and they're coming from other places where, you know, the, the food miles are just really, really significant. And so I think that, you know, it obviously makes sense that they're trying to change things. And I certainly know even 15 years ago, they, they launched uh, the Plan A initiative because there's no Plan B um, for the climate and, and that kind of thing. Um, I don't, you know, it's it's hard when you have companies that make these announcements and then, you know, the retail experience or the customer experience doesn't really seem to necessarily support these kind of things. And so uh, it'd be interesting to see if these things start to come into alignment and some of the, you know, overall corporate goals start to match with the retail experience. So I'm curious and I'll see, but it's, it's obviously good, you know, that companies are making these kind of announcements. And, you know, finally, just to segue into these, uh, bits about the innovation labs and that kind of thing. You know, you've also seen Nestle, um, I can't remember the exact name, but they launched a packaging institute uh, in Switzerland, uh, I think about a year and a half ago, which was specifically around trying to innovate around new forms of packaging, plastic, reusables, that kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's an approach I think you're familiar with, Michael, in terms of like creating like an innovation zone, an innovation hub within a company. Sometimes people call it like a skunk works or sometimes they turn into these sort of other R&D areas. And of course, you know, the advantage is supposed to be that these these folks can operate somewhat independently, you know, have a lot of freedom, not be bogged down with the admin of the larger company, uh, but have its support when they need it. Um, sometimes people manage to do that really effectively. Sometimes people don't. Um, and it's definitely not a silver bullet. You know, of course, you get more freedom, but then potentially you don't get as much support. And you know, you, if you come up with things that aren't necessarily helpful to the larger company, you may be, you know, sort of tossed to one side. But, um, but yeah, lots of sort of interesting things happening there. I'm, I'm curious about your perspective about innovation hubs, innovation labs, uh, whatever you want to call them, and, you know, whether they work and, and how, to, how to make them successful. Yeah, and I think the challenge there for a lot of large companies, um, so I did some consulting work a while back um, where I helped build out a... Uh, marketing innovation lab for, for a large uh, consumer packaged goods company um, out in New Jersey. And one of the big learnings from that was, you know, it's the, it's the old innovators dilemma story, right? When you have the entire machinery of a company um, trying to eke out your, you know, X percent growth every quarter, um, you, you tend to have a culture that uh, is, is, is very geared towards that. The problem with innovation within that is you make a lot of uh, uh, quote unquote mistakes, right? So of the X number of things that you do, you know that Y number of them will fail. And that percentage can be quite high. When you're managing a business against, particularly a traditional business like this, 
against uh, you know a very small, probably single percentage growth every quarter, um, those mistakes add up and become a problem. Um, so uh, the big learning there, I think, uh, for a lot of these companies is you know particularly when they look at businesses like uh, Alphabet and what they're doing with X and um, uh, you look at the tech industry in Silicon Valley and how quickly they're able to move kind of that fail fast um, approach it's very difficult to do at a large company so I think it's smart to isolate that because um, if you're tied to the big machine um, just by the way that the expectations and structures and culture and everything else um, you, you, you tend to run into these types of problems. Now, of course, in theory, if you can crack that nut with a, with a small innovation group that's agile, that's uh, accountable by a different measure, um, to be able to scale that uh, with the likes of a Marks and Spencers, of a, of a Unilever, Nestle, and others, um, you know, the potential is there, right? And that's where, you, that's where the promise is. And of course, companies aren't exactly doing this out of the goodness of their heart. Um, you know, they're certainly feeling pressure, I, I, I'm sure. Um, you know, we just talked about funds like Astana and, and uh, uh, some of the innovation that's happening. And clearly we're hitting a point where, you know, this maybe isn't the alternative anymore. Maybe we're, we're not that far off of this being mainstream. Um, so all of that's really great and really encouraging. And uh, uh, I, I do think that big companies like this are going to move the needle. Um, I'm curious what you think the opportunities are um, for vertical farming. Uh, you know, they've got to source these ingredients from somewhere, right? So it would be on, from peas uh, and pea protein. But what, what are your thoughts sort of technically in terms of um, what the opportunity might be for vertical farmers to try to meet what you know will potentially be a pretty big demand down the road. In terms of plant-based right. yeah. proteins and, and sort of meat substitutes. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, most of it, most of those sort of ingredients and in, yeah, you mentioned pea protein, there's a lot of soy, obviously, traditionally, um, there's a lot of stuff like that. Of course, you know, people are trying to make these meat substitutes as affordable as possible. And, um, you know, they're spending a lot of money up front on innovation, which isn't about materials cost, but it, it, there's a big cost there. And then, you know, there's sometimes a somewhat complex manufacturing process, I would say. Uh, but then you're trying to source, you know, bulk materials. And, and so I would guess that most of the time vertical farming isn't really going to be a viable technique for that kind of stuff, just given the quantities that you're going to need. And, and certainly, you know, one of the... Um, one of the reasons why animal agriculture is a problem for the climate is just the huge amounts of land that are taken up uh, for growing soy and, and other, you know, crops uh, to feed livestock, you know. And so um, that gives you a sense of the scale that's required just to produce enough of this, you know, this kind of material. And so I don't think vertical farming is going to fit in necessarily there, but I think that, um, you know, absolutely, if you look at IKEA, right, producing their plant-based meatballs, there's probably, I want to say billions of meatballs or maybe trillions of meatballs that need to be made. Um, and so, you know, thinking about vertical integration, thinking about where you're going to get these crops long-term is going to be like a really important question, you know, firstly from the logistics side, but also from the sustainability side, are you sourcing, 
you know, this crop from, um, you know, land that was previously rainforest or, you know, the Amazon basin, etc. Um, you know, that's hugely pro problematic. And so I think that uh, it's definitely going to come into a question of like, you know, just thinking through that logistics for these companies. And I think that, um, you know, that's one of the things about vertical farming that we sort of have to keep on communicating and talking through is like, you know, what is the purpose of this kind of farm? Should we be growing bulk crops that can be grown outdoors? If we project, you know, 20 or 30 years in the future, are we going to have to be using more of this kind of farming because viable farmland is going to be in short supply? Um, you know, how, how might that go? And so uh, the answer now seems to be really obvious, like you probably shouldn't grow soy in a vertical farm. Um, but you know, in 50 years time, I don't, I don't know. And so, you know, hopefully we've got, you know, still really good um, kind of control or use of agricultural land, hopefully water use, um, you know, can be managed, but, you know, these things are becoming increasingly sort of in question. And uh, certainly we've seen in the weather this year, you know, in California, which is very drought prone, and that's very much because of agriculture, um, you know, things that used to be predictable uh, are not anymore. So, so we'll see. Which uh, leaves us, leads us to the, the final article that I wanted to talk about. So this was in The Guardian, and you had actually sent it around to the team on Slack. Um, and the headline is, 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 you know, certainly gets, gets your attention. The headline is 1% of farms operate 70% of the world's farmland. Um, so this is based on a study by the International Land Coalition. And what they did was they compiled 17 different uh, uh, research papers uh, and analyzed the data. Um, one of the data points is that 80% of small holdings of, of less than two hectares are uh, generally excluded from global food chains. Um, and uh, a couple of other data points uh, that I want to share with you. Asia and Africa have the highest levels of small holdings where human input tends to be higher than chemical and mechanical factors and where timeframes are more likely to be for generations rather than 10 year investment cycles. And um, uh, the other the other point of note that I thought was interesting is um, this 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 isn't the way that it's always been right since 1980. Um, over the past four decades, uh, the biggest shift from small to big was in the United States and Europe, where ownership is in fewer hands and even individual farmers work under strict contracts for retailers, uh, trading conglomerates and investment funds. Um, and here's the problem, the article in the study states that uh, you end up having a concentration of ownership and control results. Uh, in a greater push for monoculture and more intensive agriculture as investment funds tend to work in 10 year cycles to generate returns. Um, so, you know, you've got impacts on uh, unemployment, uh, exploitation of the workforce, unequal wealth generation. You've got mass migration that you're seeing uh, with people being displaced and, and uh, an increase in the rural and urban divide. We saw that a lot. Uh, come up in, in this recent uh, election and a lot of the debate around uh, what's happening in the United States. Uh, we've talked a lot about environmental degradation today as a result of monoculture, soil erosion. Um, 
they also cite a uh, democracy crisis um, where you've got these elite-based policies in agriculture, um, which also then leads to social inequality and health insecurity. Um, so, you know, there's a lot there and, and, and it's pretty heavy stuff. Um, but, you know, tied back to kind of where, where things are going um, and, uh, you know, what we've already talked about today, it does feel like maybe there's an opportunity for a bit of a reset. Um, and again, sort of, you know, what's the role for uh, new entrepreneurs, new farmers? Um, what, you know, you might not own uh, farmland today, um, but what uh, technology and innovation, uh, look at what we're doing in vertical farming, um, starting to put some of that into the hands of more and more people uh, and, and locally and regionally all seems to be good stuff. Um, uh, curious on your, your reaction to all of that. Yeah. I mean, it's completely unlike the guardian to have a, you know, uh, very joyful, like positive article, right? So this kind of fits into, you know, a, a mold and that makes sense. But uh, no, I mean, it is sort of scary stuff when you put it in those kinds of terms, right? This, you know, monoculture, massive farms, uh, you know, very few, uh, very small number of kind of companies controlling such huge amounts of land. And yeah, I think the exciting thing is, and you know, the, the reason why a lot of folks get interested in vertical farming and, and other forms of urban agriculture is that there is this chance to maybe push back against that and to start things and to attract new people in. You know, if you combine some of those stats with the data around the average age of farmers in the US, you know, it's sort of late 50s, I think. Uh, a lot of people are kind of aging out of that profession and it's turned into something where, yeah, it's not really a family kind of business anymore. Um, yeah, you know, those, that, those, sort of, um, those are some of the reasons why people get excited about vertical farming, because you can do smaller things, you can do it in cities, you can do it closer to people, you can do it more accessibly, you can do it um, with a much more sort of reliable picture of, you know, um, your, the, the, the climate, you know, you're kind of climate independent. And so, so yeah, there's some, some kind of good positive moves against those trends. But yeah, it is kind of scary just to see those numbers. And you know, if you take it back to the point about uh, sourcing and, and crops and what people are actually growing on these farms, and if you look at that, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of that farmland is devoted to feedstock for factory farming. You know? So, so uh, crops like soy and, and others that are used to, to feed livestock in factory farming, uh, as opposed to um, you know, animals feeding on grass or, or other sort of pasture. And so, so yeah, you know, depressing numbers. I think like, you know, if you, as far as I can see, maybe, you know, it's hard to know, right? You have this kind of beta Meinhof effect where it's like the more you're conscious of this stuff, the more articles you see. And so you wonder like, uh, is this stuff reaching the news more or am I just reading more of this stuff? And I don't know, but I think that certainly you know, people's understanding of the climate impact of agriculture is a lot more developed than it was maybe five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, and then the technologies that have allowed kind of new kinds of farming an interest in new kinds of farming have evolved as well. And so, you know, we know, for instance, mushrooms far mushroom farmers, you know, you mentioned an insect farmer just now, we know strawberry farmers, we know people who are doing things um, you know, indoors, outdoors, urban settings, that kind of thing. There is lots of cool stuff going on. And I think the, 
the um, the other news that you mentioned about the you know the funds investing in um, not just you know climate but also ag and food tech shows that there's huge financial interest and so I think we will see some disruption of that status quo uh, but that's why you know for me I think I like to support those companies that are kind of pushing back against that monoculture pu- pushing back against mega sized farms and doing things that are much more human in scale you know um, I think that's that's good for everything. And if you if you make the analogy to the internet, right? You know, what, we've got a huge problem right now with Google and Facebook and Microsoft and, uh, you know, Amazon. I shouldn't forget Amazon, <laughs> like owning such a huge, you know, huge, huge portion of, of what we do every day. Um, and so, you know, it just can't be good, right? We have to have mechanisms against that. We have to push against that. Um, and one of, one of the best ways to push against that is innovation. Um, and trying to, you know, democratize things and make things a little bit more accessible to everyone. So I hope that happens. But yeah, it's kind of scary, scary numbers. Yeah, I, I, I think it is. But I also think it's really promising. I mean, that's what I think this week's sort of collection of news, you know, on the surface, you're sort of like, ah, this is, but it, it, I, I don't know, I find it really promising that you're seeing funds of that size, like uh, what Astana is doing. Um, you know, I think we're starting to see some really interesting hap- things happening in the developing world as well, which, uh, you know, it, it, we're, we're seeing that happen in, in Africa and other places in Asia as well. Um, and, you know, I think we've also seen this happen with renewable uh, energy. Renewable, renewable energy is, is, is now cheaper in many places. Uh, than uh, fossil fuels. Um, and, you know, of course, the oil and gas companies are conti- going to continue to try to eke out as much as they can. But the reality is, is, you know, you're fighting against uh, a, a fact, a truth of the world of finite resources. Um, and I think that applies to agriculture and the food system as well. Um, and to your point, the innovation's good. And it, it, it does seem like, you know, we are at this really interesting turning point um, and, you know, for better or worse, COVID has shown uh, that we need better supply chains, better, a more resilient supply chain. Um, and hopefully all of this is leading to some really good stuff for the, for the industry um, and for humanity as a whole. So <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds like a reasonable place to end, I think, with some positive thoughts, you know, post Thanksgiving. Uh, into the rest of the year. And so uh, we're going to be joining everyone next week again for another episode of the podcast. Um, I don't know exactly if we're going to have a guest. We're going to see. It might be a COVID-related question, you know, because some people have got to be quarantining and all that kind of thing. So so we'll let you know. But in the meantime, uh, please like and subscribe. There's some links down the bottom of the screen here if you're watching on video. Uh, if you're not watching on video, you should try it out. You get to see beautiful images of our farm and the things that we do in here Uh, but also you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes and stitcher and all those other good places so with that we'll leave you there thank you very much for tuning into the farm one podcast i'm robert lang i'm with michael chin and we're gonna say goodbye see you next week goodbye